Section 30 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Denham. Chapter 9 The Reformation in France by A. A. Tilly. Part 1. The Reformation in France never developed into a national movement. Though the Protestants, under the stress of persecution, consolidated themselves into a powerful and well-organized party, they never formed more than a minority of the nation. The majority, whose attachment to the Catholic Church was stronger than their desire for her reformation, detested the reformers as schismatics and separatists, even more than as heretics. When the Protestant ranks were recruited by the accession of numerous political malcontents, a more worldly leaven pervaded the whole cause. The principle of passive resistance was abandoned, and an appeal to armed force became inevitable. The result was a succession of religious wars which lasted, though not continuously, for more than thirty years. It was not till the beginning of the seventeenth century that France, once more at peace with itself, was able to work out on her own lines a counter-reformation. Yet at the beginning of the sixteenth century, nearly all enlightened men were agreed as to the necessity for reform. The evils under which the church in France laboured were those which prevailed elsewhere. Rapacity and worldliness among the bishops and abbots, ignorance in the inferior clergy, great relaxation of discipline, and in some cases positive immorality in the monasteries and nunneries, and as the result an ever-widening separation between religion and morality. The first of these evils was a favourite topic with the popular preachers of Paris, the Franciscans Michel Menot and Olivier Maillard, and the Dominican Guillaume Pepin. On the other hand, the everyday story of the period has more to say about the ignorance of the parish priests and the immorality of the friars. The Franciscans seem to have been especially unpopular. All ranks of the church alike fell under the lash of Sebastian Brandt's Ship of Fools and Erasmus' Praise of Folly, both of which were translated into French and widely read. But Frenchmen can relish satire even of what they love, and the people were none the less sincere in their attachment to the church because they applauded the sallies of the jester. This attachment was all the stronger because it sprang as much from a national as from a religious feeling. Ever since the days of Philip the Fair, France had maintained an independent attitude towards the papacy. During the Avignon captivity, the popes had been her obedient servants. At the Council of Constance it was two Frenchmen, Jean Gerson 
and Pierre Dailly, who were chiefly instrumental in bringing about the declaration that councils are superior to popes. The pragmatic sanction, 1438, as has been related in the first volume, gave definite shape to the liberties of the Gallican Church, and, though during the reigns of Louis XI and Charles VIII it was more or less in abeyance, the position of the French Church towards the papacy remained practically unaltered. Louis XII formally restored the pragmatic, and in his contest with Pope Julius II, skilfully made use of the popular poet Pierre Gringoire to influence public opinion. In his famous tetralogy of Le Jeu du Prince des Sceaux et Mersottes, played at Paris on Shrove Tuesday, 1511, the Pope was held up to open ridicule. Thus in France, there were no motives of personal interest at work to make a revolt from Rome desirable. The effect of the Concordat, the substitution of which for the pragmatic 1516 was the only reform that the Fifth Lateran Council gave to France, was to put the French Church under the authority not of the Pope, but of the King. But the change in the method of appointing bishops and abbots from canonical election to nomination by the crown, which was the chief feature of the Concordat, while it put an end to the noisier forms of scandal in the elections, greatly increased what many regarded as the root of the whole evil, the non-residence and worldly character of the superior clergy for Francis I found that the patronage of some six hundred bishoprics and abbeys furnished him with a convenient and inexpensive method of providing for his diplomatic service and of rewarding literary merit. A large number of abbeys were held by laymen, and even bishops were not always in orders. Pluralism in an aggravated form was common, the case of Cardinal Jean of Lorraine has been noticed in an earlier chapter. His brother Cardinal, Jean du Bellay, at one time enjoyed the revenues of five sees and fourteen abbeys. Italians shared largely in the royal patronage, and in 1560 it was estimated that they held one-third of all the benefices in the kingdom. It was this new attempt of patronage which more than anything paralysed all attempts at reform. It was idle to talk of reform at the bottom, when at the top every personal interest was bound up with the existing corruption. An impulse to reform was clearly needed from without. This was furnished by the Renaissance, for it was inevitable that the spirit of free inquiry, which was the main characteristic of that movement, should also invade the domain of religious dogma and church institutions, and that, penetrating here as elsewhere to the sources, it should apply itself to the first-hand study of the book upon which dogma and institutions were ultimately based. 
it was inevitable also that the spirit of individualism which was another marked characteristic of the renaissance should end in questioning the right of the church to be the sole interpreter of that book and in asserting boldly that the final test of all religion is its power to satisfy the needs of the individual soul the connection between the two movements the renaissance and the reformation was especially close in france in both alike the same man occupied an almost identical position standing on a threshold which he never actually crossed this was jacques lefebvre a native of Etaples in picardy faber stapulensis after taking his degree in arts in the university of paris he studied for some time in italy and then devoted himself to the teaching of aristotle and mathematics he was also a busy writer and edited various works including latin translations of most of aristotle's works though his latin was somewhat barbarous and his knowledge of greek imperfect his services were warmly recognized by younger scholars many of whom were his pupils in the year fifteen o seven when he was about fifty he abandoned secular learning entirely for theology and in fifteen twelve published a latin translation of st paul's epistles with a commentary the book was remarkable in two ways first because a revised version of the vulgate was printed by the side of the traditional text and secondly because it anticipated two of the cardinal doctrines of the lutheran theology thus in the commentary on the first epistle to the corinthians lefebvre asserts that there is no merit in human works without the grace of god in that on the epistle to the hebrews he denies though in somewhat less precise language the doctrine of transubstantiation while admitting the real presence lefebvre remained for some years after the publication of his book in the seclusion of the abbey of saint germain des prés at paris where his former pupil guillaume brissonnet was abbot his book though it attracted the attention of the learned, passed otherwise unnoticed. It was not until 1519 that the spark which he had kindled was fanned into a flame by the dissemination of Luther's Latin writings, which were read eagerly at Paris. But it was Brissonnet who first put his hand to the practical work of reforming the church in France appointed to the see of Meaux in 1516 he had after an absence of two years at rome on a special mission returned full of zeal for the reformation of his diocese it was in the prosecution of this design that towards the close of the year 1520 he summoned to Meaux his old tutor lefebvre and certain of his friends and pupils all noted for their learning and piety, and all sharing more or less in his theological views. Among them were François Vatable, eminent as an Hebrew scholar, 
Guillaume Farel, and Gérard Roussel. Another member of the group, Michel Darand, was already at Meaux. They met with great favour from the bishop, and throughout his diocese carried on the work of preaching Christ from the sources with vigour and success. The movement was watched with eager sympathy by the king's sister, Margaret, Duchess of Alençon, who had chosen the bishop for her spiritual director, and was at this time carrying on with him a voluminous correspondence. In June 1523, Lefebvre published a revised French translation of the Four Gospels, the first instalment of a new translation of the whole Bible, which he had been urged to undertake by Margaret and her mother. The rest of the New Testament followed before the end of the year. Except in a few passages, it was nothing more than a revision of Jean de Rély's Bible, itself almost an exact reproduction of the old thirteenth-century translation, but its publication did much to spread the knowledge of the New Testament. Though the effect of Luther's writings in France was considerable, the French reformers showed almost from the first a tendency to base their theology rather on the literary interpretation of the Scriptures than on the specially Lutheran doctrine of justification by faith. Moreover, the geographical position of France brought them naturally into closer relations with Bousser and Capito at Strasbourg, and with Ecolampadius at Basel, than with Luther at Wittenberg. For two and a half years the preaching at Meaux went on without molestation, and then the storm-clouds began to gather. Already on April 15, 1521, the Faculty of Theology of the Paris University, commonly called the Sorbonne, had formally condemned Luther's writings, and on August 3 of the same year the Parliament of Paris had issued a proclamation that all those who had any of these writings in their possession should deliver them up under penalty of a fine or imprisonment. It was by virtue of this order that on June 16, 1523, the books of Louis de Berquin, a gentleman of Picardy, noted for his learning, were seized, examined, and censured as heretical. On October 15, the Bishop of Meaux, whose sole desire was to reform the Church from within, and who consequently had no sympathy with Luther's attitude of open revolt, issued two synodal decrees. One against the doctrines and books of Luther, and the other against certain heretical opinions which had been preached in his diocese, touching prayers for the dead and the invocation of the saints. The latter decree was probably aimed at Farel, whose fiery and logical mind had carried him further than his companions, and who had left Meaux after only a short sojourn to become the leader of an advanced section of the movement which denied the real presence, and showed generally 
an iconoclastic and uncompromising spirit. The other preachers were still protected by the bishop in spite of the Paris Parliament. However, in March 1525, an example was made in the person of a wool-carder named Jean Leclerc, who, having committed a fanatical outrage, was whipped and branded, first at Paris and then at Meaux. A few months later he was burnt at Metz for a similar offence. While Francis was a prisoner at Madrid, the Queen Mother, urged by her First Minister, Cardinal Antoine Duprat, and by her own anxiety to gain the support of the Pope, induced the Parliament to appoint a commission for the trial of Lutherans. Many persons were imprisoned. Lefebvre's translation of the New Testament was condemned to be burnt, and proceedings were instituted against the Mole preachers. They saved themselves by flight, finding a refuge at Strasbourg in the house of Capito, October 1525. In January 1526, Berquin was imprisoned, and on February 17, a young bachelor of arts named Joubert was burnt at Paris for holding Lutheran doctrines. On March 17, Francis returned from captivity, and on the very day of his arrival in France, he sent an order for the Parliament to suspend all action against Berquin, who, after considerable delay, was set at liberty. Lefebvre, Roussel, and Arande, who still called themselves members of the Catholic Church, were recalled from exile, and Lefebvre was appointed tutor to the king's third son. In spite of the execution of Jacques Pauvin, one of the Meaux preachers against whom proceedings had been taken with the full approval of the king, August 28, 1526, the hopes of the reformers began to rise, and on the whole, up to the end of 1527, things seemed to be taking a turn in their favour. But on December 16 of that year, the king, being in straits for money for the ransom of his sons, summoned an assembly of notables, and when the representatives of the clergy accompanied their vote of one million three hundred thousand livres with a request that he would take measures for the repression of Lutheranism, he gave a ready assent. An outrage on a statue of the Virgin at Paris, May 31, 1528, furnished him with an opportunity of proving his sincerity, and he took part in a magnificent expiatory procession. Not long afterwards Berquin was again brought to trial, and found guilty of heresy. Francis left him to his fate, and he was burnt on April 17. 1529. He might have been the Luther of France, says Theodore Beza, had Francis been of Frederick of Saxony. Meanwhile, an important provincial synod, that of Sens, 
had been sitting at Paris from February to October of 1528, under the presidency of Cardinal Duprat, the Archbishop of Sens, for the purpose of devising measures for the repression of heresy. Similar synods were held for the provinces of Bourges and Lyon. For two and a half years after Berquin's death, the king showed no favour to the reformers. But in the autumn of 1532, another change in his religious policy began to make itself felt. The ever-shifting course of his diplomacy had now brought him into a close alliance with Henry VIII, and into relations with the Protestant princes of Germany. It was perhaps significant of this change that Jean du Bellay, who, like his brother Guillaume, was in favour of a moderate reform of the Church, was at this time appointed Bishop of Paris. During the whole of Lent, 1533, Gérard Roussel, at the instigation of Margaret, now Queen of Navarre, and of her husband, preached daily in the Louvre, to large congregations. And when Noël Béda and some other doctors of the Sorbonne ventured to accuse the king and queen of heresy, and to stir up the people to sedition, Francis, on the matter being reported to him, issued from Melun an edict banishing the doctors from the city. The Queen of Navarre became, in consequence, highly unpopular with the Orthodox, and, in a comedy played by the students of the College of Navarre on October 1, 1533, was with Roussel held up to ridicule under a thin disguise. The desire of the King for the Pope's friendship led, however, to a fresh change of religious policy and as a result of the conference with clement at marseilles october one to november twelfth fifteen thirty three francis while declining to join in a general crusade against the followers of luther and zwingli agreed to take steps for the suppression of heresy in his own kingdom and received from the pope a bull for that purpose an opportunity at once occurred for putting it into force. On November 1, the new rector of the University of Paris, Nicolas Cop, in his customary Latin oration, enveloped in unmistakable terms the doctrine of justification by faith. It soon became known that this discourse had been written for him by a young scholar of Picardy, named Jean Covin, or, as he called himself, Calvin. The scandal was great, and the king, on hearing of it, immediately wrote to the Parliament, enjoining it to proceed diligently against the accursed heretic Lutheran sect. Within a week, fifty Lutherans were in prison, and an edict was issued that any one convicted by two witnesses of being a Lutheran should be burnt forthwith. "'It will be like the Spanish Inquisition,' wrote Martin Bousset. But the king's Catholic fever quickly cooled down. On January 24, 1534, 
he entered into a secret treaty with the German Protestant princes, and when he returned to Paris in the first week of February, the prosecution ceased. Evangelical doctrines were again preached in the Louvre. "'I see no one round me but old women,' was the complaint of a Sorbonne doctor from his pulpit. "'All the men go to the Louvre.' In the spring, Guillaume du Bellay was sent for the second time on a mission to Germany, with the object of concerting with the German theologians some via media which should effect a reconciliation between the two religious parties. Accordingly he sent a request to Melanchthon to draw up a paper embodying suggestions which might serve as the basis for an oral conference. Melanchthon complied, and Dubellet returned to France with a paper dated August 1, 1534, in which the various points in dispute were separately discussed, and means of arranging them were suggested. But these hopes of reconciliation were suddenly scattered to the winds by the rash act of some of the more fanatical reformers. On the morning of October 18, 1534, the inhabitants of Paris awoke to find the walls of all the principal thoroughfares placarded with a broadside in which the mass and its celebrants were attacked in the coarsest and most offensive terms. Copies were also pasted up in Orléans, and other towns, and one was even affixed to the door of the royal bedchamber at Amboise, where Francis was at the time residing. The people of Paris were thoroughly roused and frightened by what seemed to them a blasphemous outrage. The king was furious. A persecution began in Paris, which far exceeded all its predecessors in rigour. By the middle of November two hundred heretics were said to be in prison. Before the end of the year this number was nearly doubled. By Christmas eight persons had been burned. Early in the following year, 1535, the king returned to Paris, and on January 21 took part in a grand expiatory procession. This was followed by a public banquet at which he made a long speech, announcing once more his intention of exterminating heresy from his kingdom. The day of expiation closed with the burning of six more heretics. On January 25, seventy-three Lutherans who had fled from Paris were summoned by the town crier to appear before the courts or, in default, to suffer attainder and confiscation of their goods. Among these was the educational reformer Maturin Cordier and the poet Clément Marot. By May 5 there were nine more executions, making in all twenty-three. But the king was beginning to relent. On the death of the Chancellor, Cardinal Duprat, July 9, Francis appointed in his place Antoine du Bourg, 
who was favourable to the reformers. On July 16, he issued an edict from Coucy, announcing that there were to be no further prosecutions except in the case of sacramentarians and relapsed persons, and that all fugitives who returned and abjured their errors within six months should receive pardon. The reason for this milder attitude was that Francis was still angling for an alliance with the German Protestant princes, and had renewed the negotiations with Melanchthon. By the direction of Guillaume du Bellay, John Sturm, who held at this time a professorship at Paris, wrote to both Melanchthon and Bousset, urging them to come to France for the purpose of a conference with the Paris theologians. Melanchthon consented, but the elector John Frederick of Saxony refused to let him go, and the proposed conference had to be abandoned, August 1535. At the same time the Sorbonne, to whom Melanchthon's paper of the preceding year had been submitted, expressed its entire disapproval of the project. Bousset, however, still worked indefatigably on behalf of a reconciliation, and at the close of the year du Bellay was again in Germany, first assuring the Diet of Protestant princes assembled at Schmalkalden that his royal master had not burned his Lutheran subjects from any dislike of their religious opinions, and then holding interviews with Melanchthon, Sturm, and others, in which he represented his master's theological views as differing not greatly from their own. It was all to no purpose. Princes and theologians alike had ceased to believe in the French king's sincerity. Neither the Edict of Coucy, nor a similar edict, somewhat more liberal, which was issued in May 1536, had much effect in bringing back the exiles to France. The great majority preferred exile to abjuration. Thus, while the cause of Protestantism in France lost in this way many of its most ardent supporters, on the other hand there fell away from it the timid and the interested, those who had no wish to be burned like red herrings, and those who basked in the sunshine of the royal favour. Moreover, the sympathies of moderate men, of men like Guillaume and Jean du Bellay, of Guillaume Boudet and François Rabelais, were alienated by the iconoclastic outbursts of the reformers. They were favourable to a reform of the Church by moderate means, but they were statesmen or humanists, and not theologians. Rabelais' Gargantua, which he must have finished just before the affair of the placards, contains several passages of a distinctly evangelical character. But in his later books we find him throwing stones into the Protestant garden. Lastly, there was a small group who followed the example of the Queen of Navarre and her ally Gérard Roussel, now Bishop of Oleron, and, while still holding the chief evangelical doctrines, 
continued members of the Catholic Church, and conformed to most of its ceremonial. Though this seemed to Calvin an unworthy compromise, it fairly represented the half-practical, half-mystical character of Margaret's religion, and her adherence to a certain phase of the Renaissance. Thus the affair of the placards, and the resulting persecution, had made too wide a breach between the two religious parties to admit of its being healed. Partly from the timidity of the leaders, and partly from the rashness of the rank and file, the first, or evangelical, phase of Protestantism in France had failed to bring about a reform of the Church. In the early part of the year 1536, the man who had initiated the movement, the aged Lefebvre d'Etaples, died at Nérac. Almost simultaneously, there appeared a work which was to inaugurate the second or Calvinistic phase of French Protestantism, Calvin's Christianiae Religionis Institutio, March 1536. Though little more than a sketch as compared with the form which it finally took, it was in essential points complete. It gave the French reformers what they so greatly needed, a definite theological system in place of the undogmatic and mainly practical teaching of Lefebvre and Roussel. It gave them a profession of faith which might serve at once to unite their own forces and to prove to their persecutors the righteousness of their cause. It is true that French Protestantism, in thus becoming Calvinistic, in a large measure abandoned the two leading principles of the movement out of which it had sprung, the spirit of free enquiry and the spirit of individualism. But without this surrender it must in the long run have yielded to persecution. It was only by cohesion that it could build up the necessary strength for resistance. Thus the French Protestants hailed the author of the Institutio as their natural leader, as the organiser of their scattered forces. Little wonder if, during the next twenty-five years of their direst need, they looked for consolation and support to the free city among the Alps, and to the strong man who ruled it. End of section 30 Recording by Tom Denham